Good morning. Welcome back to the Broadcast Retirement Network. I'm Jeff Snyder. This is BRN Weekly for Saturday, March 11th, 2023. And our top story today, yep, it's Secure Saturday. Are technical corrections coming for Secure 2.0? Well, joining me now to discuss this and a lot more are Greg Jenkins and Jennifer Flitton with Invesco. Greg, Jen, great to see you. Thanks so much for joining us on the program this morning. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Jeff. Great to be here. Yeah, and I always, I got to say, we've been doing this since the beginning of the year, and I feel more secure every <laughs> every Saturday. So that that's a positive. But Jen, I want to start with you. Um, in, in all seriousness, I, I know that you um, have a lot of activity on the Hill. You're, you've been watching Secure since its birth and signing. Um, what's the impact? And, and does this more put, does Secure, the passage of Secure, put more emphasis on the U.S. private retirement system today? Yes. And I think what we've seen over the past, well, the first SECURE passed in 2019, but it was really a five-year evolution. And this latest SECURE Act passed, you know, 2022. So it was a really quick follow-up. And I think what you're seeing is Congress really interested in making sure that we have a secure uh, retirement, private retirement system, especially as we go into some of the more difficult conversations around some of the entitlement um, programs and, and you know, the solvency of some of those. So ensuring now that current retirees, future retirees, and young people who are learning how to save for retirement are doing it in such a way that um, we'll have a secure private retirement system. I think that's a huge focus that Congress has right now. And that's why you've seen the bipartisanship that you've seen in Congress. Jen, you know, there have been a lot of talks since the, the passage. Um, you know, Congress worked really hard. You don't ever get the bill 100% right. And there are going to possibly be some technical corrections. What are you hearing in terms of those technical corrections? Catch up might be one of them, there could be others. And, and, and how would you attach those tech, you, but how would Congress, I mean, you could, but how would Congress attach those technical corrections to a bill? Well, I think the expectation is that they would have to, because that's how the secures have passed, have passed in the past, right? Um, but in the case of the technical corrections, if they're able to get wide bipartisan support, if they're able to keep it narrow on the technical drafting errors, um, then there is an opportunity for a suspension bill in the House or a UC in the Senate to move this to the president's desk. And, and I know that's technical language right there, right? Procedural language. But that's a way in which they can suspend the rules and quickly pass something on the House floor and quickly pass something on the Senate floor in order to get it to the president's desk. And there is a lot of chatter on the Hill right now around these technical corrections, and they're hearing it from both sides of the aisle. So we're hoping there will be the wherewithal to, to get something done, get it done quickly so it doesn't need to get on a vehicle. Over. And Greg, I'm, Greg, I'm going to come to you in a second, but just one more question. I don't want you, you to feel left out, Greg. But uh, just just one additional question. I mean, is there anything lots of industry people uh, involved heavily, uh, people beyond just just you and others at Invesco, the team at Invesco, anything that the industry can do to kind of maybe move this along other than communicate and say, hey, you know, we've got op operational changes and technical changes that have to be made. Can we move this along? I mean, anything we can do to kind of cheer that on? 
Yeah, that's exactly what they're doing right now, right? So they're educating staff on how um, the industry is looking at some of the, the legislative language, the, now the law, and um, trying to give them advice on how to address this in, in technical corrections. Um, you're also seeing a lot of conversations with Treasury, with IRS, with Department of Labor, and trying to determine what needs guidance what needs promulgation and regulation, and then what needs this, this technical corrections bill in Congress. Well, I think we're gonna be waiting and, and with bated breath. Uh, Greg, finally, my friend, your turn. Let, um, let's <laughs> talk about collective and I'm just kidding with you, Greg. You know, we've had you on numerous times. Always great to chat with you. Um, let's talk about the collective investment trust. That, that provision I think was a little disappointing because we didn't kind of get that all the way through. What are you hearing from plan sponsors with whom you're talking? Yeah, thanks, Jeff. Great question. And uh, so a little background on this. The rules uh, for 401ks and 403bs have been converging slowly over a number of years. And Secure 2.0 moved that train a little further down the track. It allowed 403bs to join PEPs, which um, everyone feels will be a big deal down the road. It also cleared up some things some rule differences on hardship withdrawals and long-term part-time workers. But the real missing link was eligibility for uh, collective investment trusts or CITs. And um, you know this can be very frustrating for pl some plan sponsors who have both types of plans uh, under their purview. And so they've got different rules and different investments. And, and really, the, you know, the big, the, uh, you know, the big, group most affected by this are participants. Uh, collective and collective investment trusts on the whole are less expensive than their mutual fund counterparts. There's no guarantee, of course, on a product by product basis, but but overall they're they're less expensive. And you know, think of these as these are little amounts that can add up to a very big deal uh, over time in participants' accounts. And you know, as a point of reference on CITs, it's expected this year that CITs will over CIT target date fund assets will overtake mutual fund target date assets. Uh, this is significant. This is a three trillion dollar market or thereabouts, and the needle has moved rapidly just in the time that you know Congress has um, has been talking about this and the industry has been talking about it. So there's a lot of people waiting for this uh, to get cleared up. I would say the the plan sponsors most upset are the large universities, some of the large hospital plans, they're expected to be the first uh, movers uh, into uh, collective investment trusts. And so, uh, and, and this will trickle down into the rest of market, of course, but that's those are the groups that are, I think, uh, really anxious to, to see this uh, law get passed. Yeah, and as a former consultant, I'm kind of disappointed because that parity, Jennifer, so important and Congress made a big deal uh, and the Department of Labor about fees. Greg makes some really good points about parity and making sure that you can offer the lowest price investment. Is this something that we talked about technical corrections before? Does this kind of get cleaned up? And there's the SEC, Department of Labor, all these different entities that have to kind of be in alignment. Is this something that possibly gets cleaned up with those technical corrections you were talking I, about? I think that's unlikely. This wasn't a technical error. This was an intention to take this exemption language out of the bill. And we saw that as it moved out of the Ways and Means Committee where it was included in the original markup and then got to the House floor and it had been taken out. And that's really about 
a disagreement um, within the SEC as to whether there should be exemption language um, with regard to, to this particular um, um, provision. And so there is going to have to be a discussion there. There's going to have to be a negotiation and new legislation is going to have to be introduced. It's going to have to have bipartisan support and it's not going to move through the retirement committees, right? I mean, it's going to be solely in the jurisdiction, the House Financial Services and the Senate Banking Committee. And so it's really engaging with those members, educating them on why this is a good idea and why this is good for participants and expands what they're avail- what, what is available for them to invest in and, and where the interest is from, from the participant um, um, perspective. And so that's what we'll be working on um, for for probably most of this this first half of this year. Yeah, I'm thinking maybe secure 3.0, 4 4.0, 4.50. Uh, Greg, um, we saw recently in the last couple of years, some Department of Labor uh, opinion letters around private equity and defined contribution plans. Anything in secure that helps that along, I know that there, there, there's interest. We're going to talk to Jennifer in a couple minutes about the definition of an accredited investor. That's a very important definition. But anything that that you see, Vesco sees in the Secure Act that might help with providing equal access uh, to participants to that asset class and other alternatives. Yeah, that's a great question, Jeff. And the argument behind all of this is that private investments make up a significant part of the opportunity set with investments and a significant part of the market that DC plan participants aren't uh, able to, and a, and a lot of regular people uh, as well, just aren't able to uh, to tap into. So these investments are used widely by defined benefit plans, by endowments, and even by other uh, defined contribution systems, such as Australia, who has a significant allocation to private real estate and other private investments as well. Uh, the UK is also moving ahead of us in this area. And so, so there is there is uh, some concern about it. And so the DOL issued an information letter in 2020, as you, as you mentioned. And what it did is outline how planned fiduciaries can evaluate um, private investments and still comply uh, with ERISA. And um, this it was mainly aimed at larger plans. The, uh, the Biden DOL came back in 2021 and they didn't, they didn't, um, you know, they didn't completely do away with, with the, the previous letter. All they did was uh, add some precautionary statements and say that this wasn't an endorsement of, of private equity investments, which I don't think anybody uh, thought it was in the first place. So it, there's some debate about what this actually accomplished, but it was the first time the DOL had even acknowledged uh, private investments or alternatives uh, at all. So so many feel like uh, that's significant. Fast forward to last year, there was a, a non-bipartisan, keyword non-bipartisan bill uh, introduced uh, by some members um, called the Retirement Savings Modernization Act. And what it what it uh, aimed to do was amend ERISA with a list of investments that were eligible uh, for DC plan investments. And this was a long list and included um, private equity, uh, other types of, of private investments, as well as cryptocurrency, which uh, which raised some eyebrows. And if, as uh, Jennifer will tell you, this is this was not you know legislation that was expected to pass. It was really just to test the waters uh, to see uh, what the reaction uh, would be. But any uh, legislation like this 
really needs to be bipartisan. And uh, so we're all waiting to see what Congress might do next uh, on this front. What, what they're not going to do is they're not going to issue a broad uh, safe harbor on these types of investments. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if they come up with other creative ways to try to further support this democratization of, of private investments. So, and, and Secure 2.0 did, did, really did nothing to address uh, the, this issue. So we'll have to, we'll have to wait and see uh, what comes next. Overall, the environment for alternatives and for private uh, investments uh, in DC plans is, is improving and, and there's, there's precedent. There's uh, plan sponsors that are doing it. So, uh, you know, th things are developing, albeit slowly, but like everything else, um, in this business, it's uh, you know it, it's a it's a glacial process that continually moves forward. Yeah, I was going to refer to it as a glacial, uh, <laughs> and that's being that's being uh, very friendly, Jennifer. I want to conclude. Um, you know, Greg up brought some important points on about alternatives. One of the the aspects that's not included in Secure is the definition of an accredited investor. And this is this something that um, members of Congress, whether the in the House or the Senate. Are looking at possibly expanding or redefining what this means again not part of secure i'm stretching a little bit but um an important topic nonetheless yeah this is this is really going to be dealt with outside the retirement space and you may remember back during the obama administration the first jobs act bill right it was a package of bills and it was really to expand what investors are able to invest in and the pool of investors who are able to invest and also um, it really incorporates in the private entrepreneurship in, in America. And there is a lot of interest. And we've seen that in the House Financial Services Committee, for example, um, who had a hearing on this on this issue and expanding that accreditor, accredited investor definition. And they had a, a panel of entrepreneurs who really want to get access to capital. And that is being threatened by uh, the accredited investor definition, and because it's so restrictive, right? I mean, it's a qualitative criteria, and it's mostly based on on wealth. Um, and so there is a lot of uh, momentum to get some expansion of that definition. And there is bipartisan support behind that. It's not total bipartisan, right? I mean, but you're, you're going to have um, some interesting political bedfellows on this issue, and it's really going to push the issue. Is it going to happen over the next two years in this divided Congress? I think that's an open question. But can they get some bipartisan momentum moving on this issue? Can they sort of force it um, through the House um, with bipartisan support? I think they can. And then the the, the ball will really be in, in the in the Senate in the Senate Banking Committee. And we've yet to really determine um, what what in, is going to be on the agenda as far as capital markets, the expansion of um, what investors are able to invest in um, through the, the current um, Senate Banking Committee. Yeah, well, it's certainly exciting times. There are a lot of issues in and around Secure. Jen, Greg, always great to see you. Thanks so much for sharing your insight, your expertise, and we look forward to having you back on the program again very soon. Thanks, Jeff. Great to be on. Thanks, Greg and Jennifer. Great to see you. Thanks for sharing your perspective. And when we come back, we'll take a look at some of our best segments for the week. You're going to want to stay tuned right here on DRN Weekly. Imagine a new television network 
that will make you richer, healthier, and in control of your financial future. This network is for the policewoman in Nashville, Tennessee, the baker in Dubuque, Iowa, the teacher in Lexington, Kentucky. We want to make the idea of savings and retirement culturally relevant. But what do you see as a defining issue of the midterms? Especially for the smaller businesses, I mean, they are the lifeblood of the American economy. Featuring exclusive interviews, current affairs, and docu-series. 33 yeah. years old, you retired early. The philosophy is money only matters if it helps you live a life that you love. But you gotta start thinking about retirement as soon as you get in. The Broadcast Retirement Network will drive very high engagement with premium partnerships. So this isn't retirement and savings for your parents or grandparents. This is for all Americans. And we're gonna change the way you think about money. Welcome to the next frontier of retirement and savings. This is BRN, the Broadcast Retirement Network. I'm Jeffrey Snyder, and this is your BRN Retirement Update. Sustainable investing has been a major topic of conversation, but can it help or hurt your long-term retirement savings? I spoke to an expert about this. And as you know, the way markets work, as soon as somebody's figured out a pattern, that's in the price. And so we, we can look at history and say over certain periods of time, it's been a really good idea to, to invest in oil stocks. And at other times, it's been a really bad idea to invest in oil stocks. And that's partly to do with the cycle of the industry. And it's partly to do with markets, price, new information, eventually. They don't do it instantly, but markets are pretty efficient. And they're good at putting price in. There's a lot of new information coming out about ESG right now. So anything we learn about looking at the history of the returns from ESG, that's going to be different going forward because the market is increasingly putting that stuff into the price. When investing for the long term, especially in retirement, you need to be prepared for the ups and downs. And it happens with just about every asset class. With your BRN Retirement Update, I'm Jeffrey Snyder with the Broadcast Retirement Network. Are you stuck with a low credit score? A credit report and score that's causing you to be denied credit or pay higher interest rates than others for the same things? Then do what Terrence did and called Credit Repaired for your free credit evaluation to help restore your credit. I started thinking about buying a new house and my score wasn't where I needed it to be. I called and spoke with one of the representatives and we just had a good conversation and I, I liked what he was saying. Just one call for his free credit evaluation was all it took to start back on the track to repairing his credit. I'm seeing the deletions and I'm getting the report, so I know something's being done. It does make a difference to me. All it takes is one call to get started. Credit repair has given me a second chance to have a better credit score. Don't let a low credit score hold you back another day. Do what Terrence did and make the call for your free credit evaluation. Call 800-819-4152. That's 800-819-4152. Again, 800-819-4152. 
Welcome back. We kicked off the week with a discussion about a simple smartphone for seniors. Let's take a look. So our phone, the RAS memory cell phone is focused on people with cognitive decline. So most of them have about 72% of our customers have dementia and some of it's fairly advanced. So those types of people really need something really simple and they can definitely have issues calling 911. Um, and in fact, one of the most common issues is that they call 911 too often. So they imagine emergencies, they imagine some sort of abuse, they imagine that they're walking in the forest when they're really sitting in a hotel in their assisted living facility. And as a result, they'll call 911 too frequently. In some cases, it could be a couple times a day. And what happens is that the care the family will take away their phone because that not because the police eventually call them and tell them, hey, you have to solve this problem. So we have various ways in which we address those types of problems. Basically, we take all the pain points that are experienced by families and people with dementia using a, a, a cell phone, and we try to address those one by one. The phone itself is actually a smartphone. So the hardware we use is Motorola manufactured hardware, and we put our software onto the hardware, and it basically takes over the phone. So our uh, experience is basically superimposed onto the phone. And essentially what we do is we offer sort of two experiences. One is the experience from the point of view of the senior with uh, cognitive decline. And the other experience is the experience of the caregiver, which is usually an adult child. So a family yeah. caregiver. And the senior basically has this very, very simple environment where they basically see pictures on the screen. And to make a call, they simply put their finger on a picture and the call's initiated. And that's it. So they're limited to this very, very simple environment where they can't see other apps. They're not seeing Facebook. They're not seeing Google Chrome. They can't access the settings. They can't accidentally put the phone in safe mode and uh, airplane mode. Uh, they can't accidentally lower the volume and say they can't hear the phone is broken because the volume buttons are disabled. So the volume is always set at maximum. So we basically create this very, very safe environment where the senior with cognitive decline cannot uh, basically change settings and so forth or go into apps that they shouldn't be going into and confuse themselves so that they can have this very, very simple experience. And then- and that Sorry, no, go, go ahead. ahead. No, I cut you off. Go ahead, finish your thought. Okay. And then from the point of view of the caregiver, the caregiver controls all aspects of the phone remotely through what we call the RAS Care app, which they download onto their own phone. So let's say the caregiver has an iPhone, they would go into the app store, download the RAS Care app. And from that app, no matter where they are in the US or Canada, they can control their senior's phone. So I talked about pictures and how you initiate a call by putting your finger on a picture. A senior with dementia is not gonna be able to download pictures on their phone. So the adult child, the caregiver, can do that from anywhere in the US or Canada, basically download that picture and it'll appear on their father or mother's phone in real time. So that's the idea. All the complexity is sort of exported to the caregiver who does all the work. And the senior just has this very, very simple experience where they put their finger on a picture and the call's initiated. 
the the app is really a fairly intuitive app. It's not really that hard to use. Obviously, it depends on the caregiver. So we do have some caregivers that aren't the adult children, and some of the adult children can be fairly old themselves. You know, they can be in the. You know, we we I got a call yesterday from someone whose mother, who's a hundred, is using the phone. So you can imagine wow. she's the daughter, so she's not so young herself. But of course, you also have uh, spouses, right? So your husband or wife has Alzheimer's and instead of the child managing the phone, the adult child, it's the spouse and they themselves are in their 80s. So for them, it might be a little bit more challenging, but it's not that complicated. So if you manage the contacts, for example, through the app for the RAS memory cell phone, it looks just like a regular sort of contacts app that you would experience on a regular smartphone. You just enter the phone numbers, you enter the, you download the pictures and so forth. And the experience is just like a regular sort of contacts app that we're all used to. So we try to make it as easy and as sort of recognizable as possible for the caregiver as well. And we also discussed what you need to know when considering buying hearing aids. Let's take a look. So yeah, now that the FDA approved a new category of hearing aids, which are OTC hearing aids, stands for over-the-counter, um, we will start to see more retailers engage in selling devices over-the-counter. So already we're seeing places like Walgreens, um, they are marketing devices over-the-counter. We're seeing more ads on television. The differences between those devices and something that is now categorized as a prescription device that you would get from someone like myself or an audiologist or a hearing instrument specialist is that those devices that are available over the counter are really limited for whom they are appropriate. So they are designated by the FDA as only appropriate for individuals with a perceived mild to moderate hearing loss. So anything beyond a mild to moderate hearing loss, someone would re really want to meet with an audiologist for testing to identify their exact hearing levels to be fit with an appropriate device. Yeah, the and we're other talk side, yeah. Go and, ahead, go yeah, ahead. And we, I, and we I, will, we'll talk about testing. Um, the other side of that is that there are more and more insurance companies that are covering hearing devices, but they do not cover over-the-counter devices much like we would go to an eye doctor and have an eye exam and that eye doctor would identify our exact vision prescription we do something very similar with our hearing when we do testing we identify exactly which frequencies or pitches someone is having difficulty hearing and then when we program their hearing instruments we are doing exactly that we are plugging in what frequencies they need that boost and then when they're wearing those devices, that's where they're getting the amplification the most, where they need it for their prescription. So there are a couple of, uh, couple of things to, to, um, to talk about in that. One is on average, it takes the average person about seven to 10 years to take action, meaning seek treatment, get hearing aids, after they've been identified as having a hearing loss. So seven to 10 years is a really long time. So if someone is going the route of over-the-counter and they are trying that first, they may actually have a more significant hearing loss than just a moderate loss, in which case something that they get over-the-counter is not going to provide enough of what they need. And they may walk away feeling like 
hearing aids don't work for me, which could prolong the, um, that motivation to then seek appropriate treatment. So we're, we typically see about seven to 10 years. That could push that person closer to the 10-year mark or maybe longer if they've tried those over-the-counter devices and they feel like, well, those are hearing aids. They didn't work for me. Why should I bother? Many devices that are both prescription and over-the-counter have Bluetooth uh, connectivity. So we are able to now connect our devices to our hearing devices to other devices that we might use, such as a cell phone or an iPad or an Android tablet. The over-the-counter devices, most of them have it. Um, there are some that don't. And again, just like prescription hearing aids come in different levels with different features, they do all come with Bluetooth, but over-the-counter devices, not all of them will have that. Um, then, but the nice thing about that is if you do have those Bluetooth devices and they are connected to your phone, you can actually download a uh, hearing device compatible app and then use that app as a remote control through your phone. Unfortunately for myself and other hearing professionals who, you know, that's our motivation is to make sure that people are getting appropriate treatment. It eliminates the professional from the equation so that the consumer can go and um, manage the process independently without consulting a professional. This is where the concern comes in because even though places like Walgreens are selling these devices, um, I believe they can be found over near the pharmacy, the people who are working in Walgreens, including the pharmacists, are not being really trained on hearing healthcare the way an audiologist is. So um, there's two factors involved there. One, an over-the-counter device is designed for someone to go and um, determine what it is that they need on their own without the guidance of a professional. However, places, retailers, chains such as Walgreens, I know that they are making an attempt to train their employees on this, but I, you know, I went to school, I have a doctorate, it took me four years to be licensed, and I do continuing education every year to maintain my licensure and my certification. There's a lot of education and knowledge that goes into what I do in practice every day. I can't imagine that someone working behind the counter at a Walgreens, whether it's a cash register or a pharmacist, is going to have the time or the inclination or the desire or the wherewithal to be able to guide their customers appropriately. There is a lot of information out there and I'm guilty of it too. You know, when I have a question or concern, I'm, I'm always running to Google and um, trying to parse out what I'm finding to, to make sense of it all. Um, there are a lot of professional websites where we do put forth unbiased information because we as professionals recognize how confusing it is for the average consumer. So it is important that they get unbiased, clear, helpful, um, correct information. So the American Academy of Audiology is, uh, is one place that they can go. The website is audiology.org. Um, another place they could look to is a local chapter of the Hearing Loss Association. Um, those are spread out around different cities across the country. And um, another place would be the uh, uh, Organization for Instrument Hearing Specialists, so, or Hearing Instrument Specialists, rather. So 
all of those organizations do have their own websites and, um, oh, also the um, American Speech, Language and Hearing Association. So their website is asha.org. So we all, um, again, our goal is to make sure that people are getting appropriate hearing healthcare. So our mission is to put that information out there available so that people do get what they need in terms of clear and concise and accurate information that is also unbiased. Well, great segments. I want to thank all of our great contributors this week. And that wraps up this episode of BRN Weekly. Have a topic of interest, somebody you think we should talk to, drop us a line. And don't forget, for all the latest curated news in lifestyle, wellness, finance, tech, so much more, and all in one place, check out today's edition of our daily newsletter, The Morning Pulse. Want to search our archives, check out our latest content, we'll visit our website, and of course, all of our streaming partners. We're back again tomorrow for another edition of BRN Sunday. I'll be joined by members of the media, academia, financial services, government, you name it, we're going to have it to talk about all the issues that are important this week. Until then, I'm Jeff Snyder. Stay safe, keep on saving, and don't forget, roll with the changes. Now is your opportunity to co-create content around any topic on the first lifestyle and wellness network. Reach a global audience through our platform and co-own exclusive branded content. All of our programs are available on demand and also as audio-only podcasts so you can take us on the go. Broadcast Retirement Network, available anytime, anywhere, and on any device. Tax audits, tax liens, wage garnishments. Every day we hear stories like this about good folks who are simply struggling to pay their bills. Each of them are living a frightening IRS tax nightmare, and they are afraid it will destroy their lives. I'm a divorced single mom, and my ex-husband left me and the kids with a lot of unpaid bills, including unpaid taxes. I was really starting to show my stress on my kids because the IRS had sent me a letter demanding a huge payment from me. I couldn't afford it. So then the IRS was threatening to garnish my wages. I'm already living paycheck to paycheck. That would have put me over the edge financially. It truly seemed hopeless, but then a friend at work told her to call the tax relief line. The people at the tax relief line, they told me about something called innocent spouse relief. They worked it out so that all of the taxes from my ex are not my problem. I don't know how that works and, and I don't care. All I care about is that I don't owe the IRS a dime and they are not going to take my paycheck. Even if it seems hopeless, you should call the number on your screen right now. There is absolutely no cost for the call or the consultation. You are under no obligation. If you are worried that the IRS could garnish your wages, seize your assets, even take your home, call us right now. The Tax Relief Line is here to help you. Now you have a knowledgeable, professional team of tax experts that are ready to negotiate with the IRS and fight for you to save you money. The Tax Relief Line's professionals have successfully negotiated thousands of cases, reducing and sometimes even eliminating the tax debt for their clients. It's very easy to get started. Simply call the number on your screen right now. You don't have to live in fear anymore. 
The call and the consultation are free.